0: This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics in Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.
1: Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. Welcome to Performance Anxiety. This week we have Anthony Pateras as our guest. He's an experimental composer from Australia. He explains how he got into this style of music and what makes it experimental. That leads to a discussion on what Prepared Piano is. He's collaborated with some great artists, including Mike Patton, Eric Eveltheim, and Will Guthrie in the band Tatema. Their killer new album is out and Anthony explains what Tatema really means, and I should not have been surprised by the answer. Pick up the new album on whatever platform you normally use. Follow us at Performance ANX. Anthony and I laughed a lot doing this. You will too. Fair Dinkum. You can of make worries. it experimental.
0: Okay. <laughs> Hi, this is Anthony Peteris from Tatema, and you're listening to Performance Anxiety with Mark Shapiro. Oh no. Oh that's not your name. No it's Shay.
1: It's Shay. But that's awesome, because I'm Fuck. still going to keep that in.
0: Okay. Mark Shapiro is like the publicity dude at Epic. Fuck. Okay. <laughs> Hang on. Um, I'll, I'll throw a few Australianisms in there for you. Okay. Alright. G'day. G'day, this is Anthony Pateras from Tatema. You're listening to Performance Anxiety with Mark Shea. You can bank on it, sunshine.
1: So, what I... The first thing I, I, I'm curious about is how you started playing music. Were you, were you playing it as a kid? Did you Were you taking lessons? And, and what instruments did you start off on?
0: Uh, yeah, I had um, a few very unsuccessful lessons on the violin when I was like four. <laughs> and then um, uh, it was clear to me that um, from that point on, I probably shouldn't play anything with a string on it. Um, but uh, I uh, actually then... My parents put me on the piano, um, and the strings are inside, which is much better for me. And um, it made a lot of sense to me from the beginning. So I um, just started playing piano when I was really young, around five. And then uh, things kind of sprouted from there.
1: So what were you listening to? Because your music is pretty experimental and, and and avant-garde even, maybe. But uh, uh-huh. I know that at four and five, you probably weren't listening to, you know, Philip Glass or anything. So what, what, what no, were you no. listening to?
0: No, I, no, I, um, I, I guess I, I was just listening to the, you know, the stuff I was playing. I mean, you know, to give you a bit of social context, my, my parents immigrated to Australia from uh, Macedonia in the uh, early 50s. Oh. Um, so I grew up basically listening to a combination of, what I was playing on the piano, which was your standard kind of Austro-German repertoire from the, um, common practice period. Okay. Uh, then, you know, any metal that like my older brother was listening to. Oh, nice. And then, and then pretty much like all of the traditional musics from the Balkans. Right. So like we'd have in the house, you know, uh, Greek film soundtracks, and then we'd have like Macedonian folk song, and then we'd have Bulgarian choral music. And then, you know, um, possibly less common but still there like some albanian village songs and so forth so yeah i had a pretty wow. broad education but but none of it was kind of far out so to say uh, none of it none of it was like you know deliberately experimental but i i do have a distinct memory of something clicking when uh you know i mean immigrant communities in melbourne well uh, we all used to have you know, picnics per, per village. Right. So like, okay. you know, my parents are from villages, which are like, you know, a hundred people, maybe less. Uh-huh. And, um, they, and then the, the, you know, the immigrants from those villages used to have these, um, picnics, right. And then at these picnics, there'd be bands. And, um, so all these people would be playing all these traditional tunes, but you know, the sound guys were always really shit. Right. Right. So like, <laughs> so there'd always be like way too much reverb or like feedback or, like, you know, like everything. Stuff was just a bit off. So, you know, whenever I'd hear that music live, it was always through this weird kind of dubbed out noisy lens of, you know, 7.8 and 11.8 kind of going through feedback and way too much reverb. So, you know, maybe that was like my first far out experimental avant-garde sonic experience, yeah.
1: That's fantastic. (laughs) Now I I kind of want to go to one of those festivals.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, 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 that was good, yeah. I mean, and of course you were just like, Tanked up like the entire time, and just (laughs) way too food, and everyone's like trying to dance it off. So yeah, yeah, it was good. Yeah. (laughs)
1: So did you you start? Were you playing in bands as you got older, or were you strictly uh, a a pianist
0: playing? Yeah, I I I, I, um I started my first band probably when I was around fourteen. I kept I kept playing classical piano all through it. But yeah, I had a I had a band our first gig was in this outer suburb of Melbourne called Werribee, and the band was called Jester Tree. And uh, yeah, I think we got paid in like party pies and sausage rolls, <laughs> which is like which is like, you know, the kind of Aussie like hybrid like, miniature version of what the English people eat. You know, it's just kind of like little packs of processed meat inside buttery pastry with tomato sauce. That and um awesome. Yeah yeah they were they're pretty great and but um yeah we played at this place called the Tudor Inn in Werribee and Werribee is like most famous for like being Melbourne's um sewage waste disposal so uh they're
1: famous for
0: okay yeah and of course obviously like employing underage musicians to play in their pubs <laughs> and so, paying um,
1: them with yeah. meat patties
0: Yeah exactly <laughs> so uh um, yeah it was pretty fun and then and then uh you know that Dissolved. I mean, I was like, you know, 14 or whatever. And then um, I started another band, um, which had a kind of, hot, you know, extremely minimal uh, notoriety in the um, Melbourne pub rock scene of being like kind of this, um, I, I would say kind of quite confused jazz metal. What uh, <laughs> the point, like swing metal. Uh, oh wow uh, hybrid you know like no one wants to listen to that but um (laughs) i tried to make it happen and uh it was you know i i I didn't know enough about either of those genres to to pull off that hybrid at the time and probably still couldn't but um yeah that's basically what that band and that band was called element unfortunately um oh my gosh it's amazing this is not something i normally admit publicly i'm I'm saying this because i was late to the interview and you know i'm (laughs) You I'm gotta, trying to make it as tasty as possible for you. Then, well, right? I
1: appreciate that. I wish everybody was late yeah. to their interviews and giving me awesome stuff like this.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's encouraged tardiness. henceforth.
1: <laughs> but it comes with a price.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay.
1: <laughs> All right. So when did you uh, realize that, that music could be a career for you?
0: Uh, I... Um, well, that's a very good question. I don't really know. Um, I, I, I from from those kind of like teenage bands, I went to this um, music department that specialized in experimental music called um, Latrobe University Music Department, and there was kind of when the penny really dropped for me, and I heard a lot of early kind of weird electronic music, some music concrete. Um, you know, I sang in the choir, some you know singing 20th century works by like Pauline Oliveros and Ligeti and people like this. And then, you know, uh alongside that you'd study like African music, for example. And then and then you would do like improvisation. And then you would study twentieth century repertoire and you know, get into how Schoenberg used tone rows or, you know, how Penderitsky used tone clusters. Um rest in peace on Sunday, by the way. Yeah. And I saw that. Uh, or uh how uh, anarchist would apply architectural theory to orchestral music and so forth. So oh you know these these, these kinds of things are always rubbing up against each other. But the, the hilarious thing about this department is that basically everyone who went there was like a complete stoner, like <laughs> rock, dog, who couldn't get into any other music department. But I went there by choice because <laughs> you know because they were they were teaching the stuff that I really wanted to know about. Um and, you know, uh, I, I wanted to bust out of this kind of, I guess, very pent-down European version of what art music could be, and get into more kind of hybridized versions of, you know, genre and technique, and and figure out how they could all function together in, you know, interesting and compelling ways. Uh, some, somewhere in there, I guess I. You know, someone told me I was allowed to be a composer. And I was like, wow, I can, I can be a composer. I don't have to just play music by dead dudes, dead German dudes. I can, I can, I can actually like be the composer and, and put the stuff together and put scores in front of people and, and, you know, and then make music with my friends in a really cool way. And, and I guess, you know, whether that was going to be a career or not it was never really clear at the beginning, but certainly just learning that I was actually allowed to be a composer was like a huge moment. You know, as like when I first heard the word, I was like, "Wow, okay, I can do that."
1: That's yeah, yeah. that's not a word that just that's just, that, that's just uh, set aside for for those guys, those dead guys. Yeah,
0: that's yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah, it can happen in contemporary like, late late nineties Australia as well. Yeah, and that's and that was something really interesting about that to me, something very attractive about it, yeah.
1: So what actually drew you to that department? What drew you to experimental music in the first place? Was there a, a, a moment, a composer or a piece that you heard that said, this is fascinating, I've got to know more about this?
0: Yeah, yeah. I I would say, firstly, uh, the people responsible for that would be um, Nankaro the Mexican um, composer who worked a lot with piano rolls and working with temporal cannons okay. and um, also John Zorn, uh, whose next city I heard also um, as a teenager. I mean, it was kind of weird. Like I, you know, I still have the CD, right. And you know, it's still got the price tag on it. We okay. have this like change store called JB Hi-Fi and yeah, I bought Naked City from JB Hi-Fi around in like the mid nineties for like thirty-seven Australian bucks, which you know, yeah, <laughs> like to pay that much for a CD now is so insane. But yeah. with inflation, I reckon I paid like you know I, I worked my my teenage like library job, you know maybe five hours just to cover that CD. Wow. But, um, but certainly, certainly, yeah, that the uh, Naked City was a big moment, and Ligeti as well. Like I mentioned before, his um, concerty and uh, his choral works. And um, also, I was like really into and Paul, Oliveros and Olivia Messiaen, and um, uh, who else? Goodness, yeah, <laughs> a lot of people at the time. But um, uh, the, the main, the, the main people that made me want to keep going, I guess, um, in, a, in, a, in a serious way, um, in the early days, would be uh, Morton Feldman and Yannis um, Kyriakos. I would say, yeah, okay,
1: and. So that that grew in from from studying to actually getting residencies, scholarships, fellowships. How does yep. what is the progression on that? Because I, I've never obviously I'm doing a podcast. I'm not getting a fellowship for that. Yeah. How how does it grow from something you study to to getting a scholarship in it to doing a residency to a fellowship? I mean, how? Does uh, that, I mean, I know that's that's uh, a really complicated know, question.
0: <laughs> I I. I... You know, all I wanted to do when I was in my early 20s was study, right? And like, and I just, I just took every opportunity that I could. And yeah. I, you know, I, I formed my own ensembles. I toured. I played like shitty clubs. I, I went on tour for no money. I just wanted to play. I just wanted to learn through playing, learn through doing. Yeah. I composed pieces for like, you know, my five best mates. You know, yeah. like stuff like that. And then, and then put on a concert and did it. You know. Wow. There you go. <laughs> you know? And then eventually, just by doing that, like again and again and again and again, you 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 gather some kind of body of work, and then someone notices that body of work, and then you you know you're able to kind of apply for things like scholarships and, and fellowships. Eventually, you know, I mean, I yeah. I, I studied. I I when La Trobe actually closed down the, the year I left. Um, oh, wow. through no fault of my own. But, um, <laughs> the, you know, they, the week I got there, they announced that they were going to close that department because it was economically unviable. And this is like the weird crossfade that, you know, universities used to be a place to kind of like research and and, and enhance knowledge about specialized areas. But now they're just a business like everywhere else, unfortunately. Yeah. But um, certainly, you know, I was at the tail end of the period where, you know, universities were just a place for learning and research. And, and, you know, so they closed the department to make room for like a golf course, I believe. And then, and then um, I went to another university and just studied um, postgraduate composition, which is basically someone paying you like less than a minimum wage to write music for seven years. And that's, and that's what I did. I just wrote as much music as possible and recorded as many albums as possible. And like put on as many gigs as possible. I was, I was organizing loads of concerts, um, at this thing called Articulating Space that I started with a, a friend called Cameron, um, Reynolds. Uh, and, and then, uh, yeah, I started putting on festivals and then it all just kind of balloons out. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think people at some point they just kind of go, okay, this guy obviously <laughs> is, is, is kind of serious about what he's doing. So, yeah. you know. We and like, I was just obsessed, you know. So At some point, the point I they saw like, that.
1: Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure what point yeah. it was when you are doing concerts for five people. So in 2008, you were awarded a PhD. Is that, is that what, what you are doing for your post-doctorate? You, yeah, exactly. You're a, you're, yeah. Okay. Yeah. So should yeah. I be referring to you as doctor?
0: You you can if you want, but it will make me very uncomfortable. Okay. <laughs>
1: all right. I won't. Do, I don't want to. Because I
0: can't that. fix anything. Yeah. You know, like I can't. I can't. I can't heal anyone. You know, especially during a pandemic. Like you yeah. know, I just. I don't think it's appropriate. <laughs> like, you know. Good. It's fine. Good. Anthony's point. fine. Um,
1: nothing, nothing like pandemic humor to break the ice, right? Yeah. So all right. So when I pose this, I won't put "doctor" in front of your
0: your name. So sure. Good... Sure. Okay, so whatever what you want, man. <laughs> you know, I might flexible. get more, I might no, get more hits though. Know, I'll take it as it comes.
1: Uh, okay, yeah. good. All right, so I have a couple questions about some of the work that you've done because it sounds incredible, but I have no idea what it is. So, okay. <laughs> if that makes any sense. All right, hit me. Okay, you composed the Pseudacusis Septet Exploring yes. Yes. Psychoacoustic Hallucination. Can you explain what in the hell that means? Because that sounds incredible.
0: Yeah, yeah. So something um, I want to do. Yeah, sure. (laughs) Well, um, psychoacoustic hallucination to me is a kind of manifestation of um, beating frequencies or acoustic interferences in a space, right? Okay. So to create these kinds of um, interferences and beatings, um, basically it involves a lot of work with tuning that not normally, you know, the instruments or ensembles aren't, don't generally play. Usually we play in a system called equal temperament, right? So that's your 12 pitches of the chromatic scale, that's like everything on the piano laid out in front of you very evenly, okay. right? So there's this the same distance between each key on the piano. When you're working with psychoacoustic phenomena, you you know, to, to, to put it um, as simply as I can, and without sending everyone to sleep, including <laughs> you and myself, um, you basically have to work in between the piano keys somehow with something called microtonality, right? So once, oh, okay. once you put, once you put frequency, once you start messing around with frequencies in between the keys, you know, like things get really interesting in terms of, you know, how sounds actually physically react with each other inside a room. So, wow. you know, you, you start to work with acoustics, you start to work with architecture, you start to work with how instruments work with electronics, you start to work with, you know, so, all of these things combine to create like a very weird hallucinogenic musical environment okay so I with that piece that's what I wanted to do right so i i the the setup for the piece is the six people around the six speakers around the audience, sorry, and then seven musicians in the space, so I was in the middle with the piano with the lid off and then and then um all of the speakers are pointing at me, and then between each speaker there's a musician, so there is like 13 points of sound in the room. So it's not like your typical stereo configuration where there's an ensemble on the stage in between two speakers. There's, you know, it's actually like a kind of architectural approach to music making. Okay. So, um, what I did was record a bunch of electronics, um, with the instruments that I was going to be using live. And then I orchestrated the electronics with the live instruments in a way that will create these beating psychoacoustic phenomena, which kind of feels like the air, the sound in the air is going inside your ears and doing kind of quite weird things to your brain. But it's a kind of, uh, I hate using this word, um, actually, so I'm not going to use it. But the word I was going to use was immersive. Um, <laughs> but I think that's like way overused. So yeah. um, I, I guess I guess for me it's, it's, it's a much more physical Quite hallucinogenic experience of sound making, and it was a long, exhausting piece. And everyone who came and saw it or played it for that matter was just tired. Afterwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, but it was, um, and yeah, it was this f- festival called Musica Sane, which was all about links between health and sound. So it was a festival based uh, medicine and sound, I should say. So um, we we did it in like four cities across Europe last year. Um, okay. Yeah. Uh, did that answer your question? Sorry, I went on a bit of a rant. No, there. no,
1: it, it, it did. Yeah. But I guess the question that, that follows that is, if it was for medicine and, and sound, but everyone was exhausted afterwards, was it yeah, good yeah, or sure. was it
0: bad? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, oh, It was good. I mean, I, I, I don't believe that you know. I mean, music can have many functions, and I, I don't, I don't think it needs to be particularly. A kind of healing force, necessarily. I think it's something which can also be quite um, energizing and also confronting. Um, in a sense that you're put in front of this thing, which you, you know you have absolutely no context for or, or no kind of experience with, and then it, it just suddenly kind of makes you listen in a different way, you know. Okay. And I think uh, the, the the point of the Musica Sunday Festival specifically was to kind of conceptually explore links between. You know how music can be used as medicine, how music influenced by medical or you know um psychiatric concepts can be employed in a you know listening context, and so forth so yeah, when I say that people were exhausted, I think it was more of just you know it, it was a very intense listening experience with you know sound flying all over the room in like you know okay. quite weird places yeah. sometimes you know like in Berlin, for example, we did it in like an old um an old uh, post-war era, um, you know, kind of psychiatry colony where, you know, oh, there wow. actually used to be kind of the patient stuff, and and um, uh, um so you know, the, I mean that th- those kinds of atmospheres don't kind of uh, evict the space easily, you know, yeah. <laughs> those kinds of spirits and and um, presences. I, I I certainly think the fulfillment area had quite a pregnant feeling to it um, in, in terms of that history
1: did did it change when you went to the different uh areas like uh you know you said you, you performed it four times did the yeah. uh it, i don't even know, i don't want to see the result but did the sound did, did the setup have to change based on the architecture or the the building materials i mean did that have an effect
0: yeah, yeah, on it Precisely. Yeah, precisely, Mark. Yeah, so I mean, that's that. I guess that's the point of the piece too, is that you know the, these sounds and and kind of um, beating frequencies react differently to different architectures and different acoustics. So so the piece sounded, I mean, you know, music sounds different. Obviously, you know, if you're a band playing on tour and you play a bunch of gigs and you know, the PA is different and the clubs different or whatever, right. but you know, the actual you know environment and architecture of the results of those factors sounded vastly different in in each space. Um, I mean, we played it in regional Poland in a small town called Sokolovsko where um, the filmmaker Christoph Koslowski is from, and, you know, we played it in the cinema that he used to go as a kid, you know, and so so that was a very dry cinema space. And then, you know, and then in um, Naples we played it in an old medieval, not a medieval, but like, uh, 14th century castle, I believe, on oh, the wow. harbour in, in Napoli overlooking Vesuvius, you know. Wow. <laughs> and everything had 12-second reverb, you know, oh. <laughs> so, so, you know, um, uh, and, you know, the the music necessarily uh, changed with the, with those uh, acoustical aspects and, and changes. And um, that, that was interesting as a composer that, you know, it essentially feels like you've written four different pieces, you know, even though it's the same.
1: That's amazing. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. See that's the kind of yeah. stuff that fascinates me. I love that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The other thing I, I would, or piece, I project, I guess maybe the best word for it is the immediata project. You, you worked on that for oh, yep. seven years, and it's yep a fifteen volume text and music project. Uh huh. Can you explain what that is and and what you did for seven years on that?
0: Oh yeah. Sure. Well, uh, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. It's a okay. Lot. So in
1: thirty um, seconds, narrow down what you did for ten yeah, yeah. years. <laughs> no, no.
0: Um, basically, uh, okay. So the the deal with that is that I, I really wanted to, I guess, make an album with people who I was either working with currently or had worked with in the past that had a quite major influence on how I think and play okay. um, as a pianist or, or as an electronic musician or whatever and um, part of that I, I have a lot of duos and I have I, I work with people you know very intensely and intimately um, you know uh, including the Detema thing with with Patton I mean um, we, we, we go into some pretty deep um, psychological territory with each other on that project <laughs> <I've>, I can <laughs>
1: imagine
0: yeah and so um when I was in the immediate, thing, I, I guess I wanted to somehow capture and document some of the intensity of the conversations you have with someone when you're making a record together and wow. um, also provide a bit of socio cultural context to where these people have come from, you okay. know. So um, – and also out of that came this really great oral history of the different cities that people kind of grew up as musicians, you know. So um, okay. um, that progressively – became apparent to me over the project that a lot of this stuff doesn't really get documented in a, in a kind of serious way. or I mean, at least quasi seriously in, in terms of just talking seriously about music very openly, um, without, you know, with the gloves off, but not just kind of being like cynical, just, you know, actually nutting out what makes people tick, what, you know, why you like particular sounds or, you know, okay. Approach or, you know uh when you played in that band in 1987 like what did you learn from that and you know and yeah. what gigs did you go to as a kid and you know stuff like that it's kind of what you're doing with your podcast i guess you know um but the the That's, difference here is, is that, you know, I like that. It, it kind of goes with a record um okay. that is the result of those kind of interactions you know
1: okay okay i i like that all right and that makes me feel legit now
0: Yeah. yeah. I, I like that yeah. Congratulations. Thanks, man. It only took me 41 years, but, you know, you got it like in a few seconds. I did. Yeah, yeah, so I – and, you know, a lot of it was based on this – I I guess the inspiration from it came uh, somewhere amongst that. I was working with a guy called um, Sylvain Lotranger, who is a French bloke who moved to – New York in the early 70s and he started working in Columbia and he started a magazine called Semiotext, which I guess was this kind of, you know, to put it loosely, punk rock philosophy um, imprint where, you know, the idea was that you would have these kinds of small little black books from continental and and American philosophers that you would be able to put in your leather jacket on the way to the gig at like CBGBs, right? So. You know, I, I'm I'm really into that idea of, you know, having these uh, accessible, um, quite dense philosophical texts, you know, but involved with, you know, underground music um, I, because those are my two biggest passions, obviously. So um, <laughs> that's what I was kind of – I was trying to do a version of that with the Mediata. Um, but the important thing with it is that it was always going to have a limit. It was always only ever going to be 15 volumes. Okay. So it made me think – very intensely and it made me think about how to condense this experience in a quite concentrated and intense way. So um, I always knew it was going to start and end with a 5 CD box set. Um, I always knew that there was going to be a solo piano thing by me in the middle, which, you know, I hate recording pianos because it's like that weird paradox that, you know, this instrument I've been playing for 36 years is like (laughs) actually the most difficult thing to record. And then and then, um, and then between that, I would have all these collaborations with my bands and, you know, people who would influenced me and, you know, new things and old things, you know, so I did a couple of new things with my partner in crime, Eki Veltheim, the violinist in Tatema, um, okay. who I've been working with since for 20 years, um, and then, you know, uh, Stephen O'Malley from Sun o, We we did a um, guitar and tape machine album in there. And then a guy oh, yeah. who I, you know, went to high school with, you know, we did a two organs album and so forth. And then the rest of it is more or less archival um, work spanning, you know, way back to 2001 when I did a two prepared pianos album with um, Eric Griswold from California. So, uh, oh, yeah, okay, okay. a lot so, of different stuff in there.
1: So I, I did notice something and, and you – you, yep. you haven't actually mentioned it yet, but I, I did notice it in, in researching you. What exactly uh, is a prepared piano?
0: Oh, yeah. Prepared piano is when you place small objects such as coins or screws um, or bits of card or bits of rubber um, at certain points in the um, inside of a grand piano or if you're very skilled um, in an upright piano, but they tend to fall out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, and you, by doing this um, meticulous and very careful process, um, you transform the sound of the piano you, into uh, essentially some kind of percussion orchestra. So okay. because the because of the fact that the object is placed inside the strings, you can actually get a quite beautiful assortment of um timbral and rhythmic possibilities, um, while maintaining the interface of the piano itself. So you, you're kind of keeping the shell of the instrument, but uh, just completely transforming its guts. Ah, So, um, yeah, I used a lot of prepared piano throughout, um, all of my composing and performing activity, um, primarily, um, in the trio, Pateris, Baxter Brown, um, which was active for 18 years and sadly, um. Baxter, um, Mr. Sean Baxter um, passed away uh, two weeks ago, um, which was who I was attempting to record a tribute to when I forgot I had an interview with you, Mark. Um, so that yeah, the idea with that band, for example, is that everyone kind of prepared, in quotation marks, their instruments. So David favorite oh. band on guitar would put things in between his guitar strings and then oh. Sean, the drummer, he would he'd never um, play his kit with sticks, for example. He would always play it with like another bit of drum kit. Yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it was a pretty kind of um, out sound world as That's... far as these things go. Um,
1: oh, all right. Yeah. So I'm going to have to look for that stuff because that that's the kind of stuff that fascinates me
0: yeah yeah so oh I, cool yeah, i was kind of a, 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 yep.
1: in an early form of that when i was putting my hot wheels cards into my grandmother's piano
0: but yeah sure i wasn't yeah. well that's <laughs> that's pretty much what i do except professionally <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> and you, you probably sound a lot better than the than the hot wheels in, in
0: my i don't know piano. i don't know you might give me a run for my money there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so at, at what point did you join forces with mike patton
0: Uh, that was, well, we actually met 2009, I think. Um, and he was out here with Phantomas for the big day out or something like that. And, um, he basically rang me out of the blue, um, and said that he'd heard my music and did I want to go and have a coffee? And I was like, okay, sure. And then, um, we kind of hit it off and thought about doing something. But yeah, we didn't really know what it was. Okay. At all. <laughs> we just knew that like. There was something. We, yep. You got
1: uh, Wolf <coughs> three and, and your friend, Eric Veldheim involved at what point? I mean, was that, was it? Yeah. The beginning? Okay. So
0: yeah, I mean, basically I think Mike and I were toying around originally with some kind of piano and voice record. Okay. Um, and then I didn't really know what to do with that at the time. Um, I would probably be more open to something like that now, but at, at the time I wanted to do something quite radical and berserk. Okay. Um, I just moved from Australia to Belgium and I was kind of feeling really kind of off kilter and just so like full of possibility and a bit wild. So I was thinking, okay, like, you know, how can I channel this, Emotion into music, this feeling of kind of displacement and unreality and kind of just weirdness. I mean, Brussels itself is quite weird because it's, you know, you have the European Union there. Yeah. Um, and, you know, so you kind of go out at night and it feels like a weird mix of like, the West Wing and like an old Jacques Brel song. <laughs> like, so, <laughs> with all these like interns trying to like pick up each other while like, while all these kind of drunk Belgians like hanging out eating cheese and mustard and like which. You know, I'm, I'm all for the second category Yeah. anyway, but, um, <laughs> the, the vibe there was, you know, I was trying to, I guess, you know, the place doesn't work, right. Okay. Like Brussels just does not work. It's like a tiny, you know, a tiny, beautiful mess of a city. And, oh, and wow. but, but you have like the whole of Europe being run from there. Right. So I was, I was really into that weird paradoxical contrast between, okay, well, we have like this huge, you know, facade of law and order, but actually like the place is very human and kind of messed up right. um, on a day to day basis. So <laughs> I, I wanted to somehow capture that notion of, you know, uh, this underlying kind of chaos in, 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 um, world politics and power, which is always there, of course. Yeah. But, um, and especially now, And then somehow channel that into a record. So we kind of started toying with those notions of kind of like, you know, the results of like post-colonialism and, you know, the dystopian futures as a result of that. Um, And, you know, somehow that kind of came out as the first record. And then, (laughs) so that's a very long and winding answer. I'm just about to answer your actual question, Mark, if you would like to hear that. I would love it. (laughs) Uh, So, then from Brussels, I went to um, a very quiet place in the French countryside and, and and wrote a bunch of rhythms and textures out for prepared piano and, and drums. And then I, I um got Will Guthrie to go to Paris after that, and we we recorded the, the kind of bass tracks for the first records, me and Will. Okay. And then and then um everything kind of grew from there. I you know started overdubbing synthesizers and orchestration and um um eventually when I got it to a point where I thought it was ready to be heard, I, I sent it to Mike and, and you know, he just kind of flipped and said he really <laughs> wanted to do it. But um, when he does that, it always takes a freaking year, right, because he just, like, he needs to absorb the music to a point where it actually feels like it's his, inside his body too, you know. Okay. Because like music for me is a very physical thing. So, you know, it's an articulation of a physical state. But And then I think mic Mike, it is, it, it's somehow similar. So he needs to absorb it. As much as I have, so that's why there's always like a kind of displacement of time from when he hears the original roughs to when he actually gets down to work.
1: Okay, okay. He's a perfect guy to 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 do this with because he's done so much experimental work. I mean, it seems like a yep. natural collaboration. Actually, what does the name mean? What what did Tetuma come from, or what, does it Titima, have a meaning? Uh, yeah,
0: it comes from um, it comes from the uh, French filmmaker, uh, not filmmaker, theater maker Arto, who eventually went insane. Um, but he he wrote this quite beautiful essay about um. There's a passage in one of his essays. I can't remember which one it is because um, – but the phrase Tatema, he starts inventing words and, you know, he, he kind of went to Mexico at one point and took a lot of peyote, and, you know, he, he started inventing his own kind of lexicon of terminology. And Tatema, right. to him, means um, a wound twice cauterized with fire. Oh. So, um, you know, <laughs> yeah, some, some, some lighthearted humor there for you, mate. In case um,
1: one cauterization yeah, is not enough –
0: yeah exactly yeah, yeah 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 burn the fucker again, yeah, yeah. So, um, <laughs> uh, yeah so so um I, the the title is from that, but um later on, I found out that it um it's some kind of rare species of bird in Swahili, and I think it also means something like um you know sweetheart or baby in um some African dialects, but I'm not entirely sure, so yeah, it okay. has multiple meanings, but the one that we kind of went with was the one from our
1: I, I think that's the one to go with. Definitely. If, yeah. if Mike Patton's involved, that's the one to go with. Yeah. Some of those vocals yeah. sound like somebody's had a, a wound twice cauterized. I, I will. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Often. Yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> now, yeah. Th- how does this whole work? Because everybody in the band seems to be in a different country or continent.
0: Is yeah, it a, yeah. Is it that's... a
1: hard process to get music together to, to, to get everything to work right?
0: Yeah. I mean, basically, you have to act really quick. Um, and you have to act really efficiently and, you know, it's like basically measure twice, cut once, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. you have to, um, but how can I put this? I guess, you know, I only ever see Will for a few days. So whenever I'm in like the same city as Will, I just get him in the studio, record him as good as possible for like a few hours. And then, you know, I'll sit with that material for months, you know, okay. and then, um,
1: well, now when that happens, do you have an idea ahead of time? Do you say, all right, yep. I know we're both going to be on this. Let's here, Here's my idea. Let's record this.
0: Yep. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that, that was the point of going to the, 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 the village in France for the first record is that, you know, I wanted to get kind of as far away from interruption as possible so I could, you know, come up with enough stuff to present a wheel when we recorded in Paris and then the second okay. time around. I'd actually did it um, on samplers and stuff, and so it was a matter of kind of swapping the rhythms on samplers for, for, for drums and so forth. So um, Okay. But, I mean, a lot of the sound of the band is due to Will's kind of nuance and musicianship, which is just extraordinary. Um, uh, you know, I mean, something, something which bothers me a lot, and it's always going to be... Kind of publicized as I minor Mike's band or whatever, but like, you know, actually like will has contributed heaps to, to the build, to the band sound as has Eki. So, um, I guess on the second record, I, I really crystallized this, this kind of four piece. you know,
1: Is it hard, is it hard to know when a, uh, a piece is completed? Cause I, you know, when I'm talking to a lot of musicians, I hear so many of them say that I just, I have to, at one point, just decide to stop fooling around with this song. And that's just with, like, regular compositional constraints. I mean, is it, yeah. is it harder to do when you lift those constraints and you're working on experimental music?
0: I think um, I don't really set out to work on something experimental per se. I just, okay. you know, with, with everything I do, whether it's with Mike or, you know, uh, Jérôme Nétanger, another bloke I work with, or, you know, or, or whether it's in like a grind band or, you know, one of, one of these things, um, there's always just this instinctual feeling or full stop that you get when you, when you, when you feel like something's ready to, to go out into the world. Um, and I think what you're talking about is largely a result of digital technology and option fatigue. I mean, certainly in the old days you would have to Pretty much know your stuff before you put it down, you know. Yeah, you would have to like sit in the studio and put it on two track, two inch, and um, nail the take. And what's interesting about working with Mike is he used to record music in that period. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know, like when Faith No More did the real thing. I mean, he he told me the story. You know, because for the first record, I went to his house. And we record in his basement a bunch of buckle ideas. And then Oh cool. He's like, I'm like, well, oh, maybe you should do that one again. And he's like, Well, you sure? I reckon that was pretty good. I'm like, no, maybe you should do that again. He's like, Okay, well I'll do it again. <laughs> but I'm gonna record over that one. And if you're cool with that, I'll do it again. But just just think about it. Oh, and wow. apparently that's what the producer said to him when they were doing Epic on the real thing, you know, their biggest hit or whatever is that yeah. the producer said to him, look, man, that's pretty good. If You're going to record it again. <laughs> wow. Like, we're recording over it. And oh, so I man. think they actually the first take, you know? So, so it's this thing of now you can record as, as many times as you want in as many ways as you want in as many places as you want. And so you have to be almost more brutal, more critical, more discerning, more, um, selective with what you choose to go with um, okay. and certainly Mike and I both did that on this latest record um, to the point where I think we drove each other kind of insane at some <laughs> point
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, the, uh, so the yep. first album Geocidal uh, yeah you know there's obviously there's time between albums and, and things change and has has anything changed with the between Geocidal to the new album Necroscape, like approaches or concepts, recording yeah, methods, anything yeah. like that?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, certainly certainly with Geocidal, it was much more of an organic um, slow burn in terms of, I mean, Necroscape was as well, but the, the difference is that Necroscape was recorded after we did a band gig, right? So we've, we've only done one show because, as you say, we all live on different continents. But yeah. the, the thing is, is that, that show we we, we were going to play geocidal beginning to end, but even that wasn't enough to fill the program. So I had to rewrite a bunch of new tunes. Mike had to write a bunch of new vocals oh, wow. and then we had to rehearse. And so, and that's why Necroscape happened, right? Because it was during that where we go, wow, okay, well, there's actually more stuff to explore here. You know, it's not just going to be like a one-off okay. You know, thing or whatever. It's actually like, it feels like a thing that can evolve and grow like a band. And, um, so Necroscape is much more written just for those four people that you mentioned. Whereas Geocidal, there's about 14 musicians on that album, all doing strings and winds and brass and so forth. And, you know, at the time, I, I, I was a bit more involved with that idea of making a sample library out of human performances
1: oh, in a way. Wow. Okay.
0: And so, so actually making a sample based record, like a Dilla record or something, but without samples. Um, so that was my approach for geocidal whereas actually with necroscope, I was like man this is really hard like I'm just going (laughs) to use (laughs) sand and so it was a lot quicker (laughs) and a lot more direct and actually a bit more fun in the end
1: (laughs) oh that's because I did see some of the footage from that festival and uh, so you say so there's a lot more people involved in geocidal was it difficult to to Arrange any of that to play it live?
0: Yeah, yeah, it was a tough pain in the ass. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it was <laughs> It was really starts. Wow. So um, yeah, I mean, basically, it involved like me and Mike sitting there, bouncing out every single little snippet from the album onto like hardware, and then coordinating how, but him, I, and Eki were all going to trigger it in a live set and coordinate that with like wheels drumming. Like it was just, it was, it took a lot of rehearsal. I can't um, imagine. But we got, yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it sounded amazing. And I, I saw two, I'll oh, cool. see two clips and uh, in between the research that I was doing. And I try to yep. try to delve as deep in as I can, but um, yeah, that's cool. Thank I, you. I really did enjoy Necroscape. So I have a question about that. What, What in the hell is a necroscape?
0: I guess, um, you know, it relates to the first album, you know, it's geocidal. So, geocidal was about the murder of place, right? So, this idea that these kinds of things like all the way from the the, the, the most harsh, serious, horrible end of the spectrum of post-colonialism, like a bunch of whiteys turning up somewhere and going, this is ours, deal with right. it. <laughs> but like gentrification in urban areas where previously – culturally enriched areas, which, which had a lot of kind of vitality and creative fecundity um, are just taken over by assholes with cash mm-hmm. and people who live ostensibly creative or, you know, rewarding lives doing what they love are pushed out into places which, you know, might not be as nice or, or just don't have the same character or, Aren't where they grew up as a person or a human, you know. And mm-hmm. and so I, that was, the first album was based very much on these kinds of, you know, sweeping geographical changes from a microcosmic level to a macrocosmic level from, you know, the local to the international. Okay. Or the global. It, with Necroscape, I guess my, my feeling with that title is that um, it's very much about the impact of technology on daily life, but not in a kind of you know. The last thing I want to do is be the guy, like the, a kind of like musical year on Lanier or something, where I'm saying you know the internet would have been cool, but all this shit went wrong. You yeah. know, like yeah. um, that's not that's not my vibe. Although I'm kind of like on his side with that, but um, I'm, I'm not going to shove that message down people's throats. You know, but yeah. like what what I guess Necroscape means to me is that you know when you're sitting on the bus and like no one's talking to each other anymore because they're all staring at their fricking phone, you know? Ah. And, and there's this feeling of like living and breathing and acting. I mean, we can't do that now, right? Cause everyone's inside. But, yeah, like, <laughs> but, <laughs> but this feeling of living and breathing, this kind of weird reality where no one's actually um, physically present where they're, where they are. And, that's, and so
1: that's a great point um, because you, you're absolutely right. I mean, you, you, I can talk to you right now on a completely the completely other side of the world, but yep. you walk down the street and nobody's talking to the person next to him because they're all yeah. on their phones.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I, I guess that permanent state of distraction um, that a lot of us live in now, um, to me is primarily a counterproductive thing. Um, mm-hmm. um because, uh, there used to be, at least in my experience growing up pre-internet, um, quite a social localised aspect to human relationships that, you know, I've begun to miss. Um, and, you know, people say that that's been replaced with, you know, the so-called social medias or whatever, but I, I really don't buy that because, you know, a lot of really evil shit happens on there. Yes. And, and you know, um, and which is easily manipulates a lot of, like large groups of people and also amplifies you know, the worst aspects of our, our personal our collective personalities. So you know, and I I don't just don't want anything to do with that. And, oh, you know, in, I couldn't in, in agree with you more. Diet. Um so uh yeah, so you know, so necroscape I guess refers to that scenario of this this weird kind of disembodiment that happens to us all via technology. So we're all kind of walking dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's that's <laughs> you know, but but with perfectly functioning minds, you know. Yeah. You know, it's a very strange paradox.
1: It really is. Yes. But yeah. the, on the uh, the positive side of technology is the fact that you could get this done, and you could send the music to Mike to to digest for a year. Um, yeah. And and some yeah. of the the songs are great. I mean, the, the compositions are incredible. Like all signs uncensored, Cutlass Eye.
0: I really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh,
1: Dead still, um, Sun yeah. Undone.
0: great so you've already heard it yeah cool. oh god cool. yeah. yeah
1: now yeah. the question that i have about some of this stuff is you said that you know you said it to mike and he takes a while do you have yeah. any idea what he's going to come up with with these with vocally or is it all of a surprise when when you get these songs back
0: oh yeah um well let me clarify yeah i mean so you know when when i kind of have like a pretty good skeleton of the instrumental part like that all goes to pattern and yeah. then yeah, he'll, he'll 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 absorb it for a year, and then we and then suddenly you know we work in really intense bursts, right? So I think I think it was like August, two thousand eighteen, where he does a rough pass, and he did the same on Geocidal too. Um okay. When I was in his basement with him, <laughs> and, and we were, um, you know, which was a hilarious hang. But, He's hanging um, out in my patent's basement. Sorry. Well,
1: yeah, I'm just hanging out in Mike Patton's basement.
0: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that was pretty funny. Um, well, that's where his studio is, right? So, um, and and then um, he'll he'll do a rough pass, and then and then I'll probably add a few more elements around that, like harmonic support or melodic ornamentation, or you know, extra orchestrations. And Mike will also have suggestions about those things. Okay. And then and then um, and then when we finally nail it, which happened last year kind of between july and september i mean we really like i mean we're talking like i don't know five or six emails a day for three months oh wow kind of sending stuff back and forth and you know usually that has got to do with some Microscopic detail that probably neither of us will be able to, <laughs> to tell you now. <laughs> but it'll be some kind of nuance or some kind of weird thing. Yeah. And we both fought to the tooth and nail over it, you know, like flaming each other on WhatsApp or whatever. And it's like, dude, it's got to be this way. No, it's got to be this way. And then, you know, but finally, you know, we, we both believe that the music wins out. So, um, you know, it's not about us in the end, um, which is a, a nice thing. So yeah, so there's there's kind of like, th- I guess three or four main stages, Mark.
1: Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, have you ever? Have you guys ever begun a composition and, and thought oh, this is just too weird, or maybe even like the opposite, like no, this sounds like Coldplay.
0: Uh yeah, no, we have not put anything in the Coldplay basket. <laughs> um okay. But uh, certainly. Certainly, you know, um, especially with Geocidal, the, the approach on that where, you know, I came up with maybe like 27, 28 kind of core ideas, and then 12 made the final record. Okay. Um, you know, some stuff just didn't work, you know, yeah. and that that's totally cool and totally natural. And and uh, with Necroscape, I can't remember, but, you know, certainly there were similar aspects where they just, you know, uh, what's it called? The cry pile. Yes. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> It's just stuff which won't work, so you just chuck it in the cry pile. It's like I like you know, that. Yeah, just cry about it and move on. Yeah, uh, we 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 have a very selective, strong. Um, you know, I mean things things have got to be like good if we're going to spend months and months on them. So, right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That makes well that makes you know total sense, especially with the distance between you guys. It's got to be worth it. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Yeah.
1: Have any yep. of the projects that you've worked on influenced another? Because you do a lot of uh, compositions. Uh, yep. you know, you, you're working with more than just Tetema. You know, you, you know you've got yep. a lot of other things going on. Has anything that yep. you're working on influenced another project?
0: Uh, sure, yeah. They all intersect and cross-pollinate in different ways, Mark. Yeah. Okay. um, For example, um, on geocidal, uh the track Arundi, um I was writing that at the same time that I was writing a piece for a soprano like a classical operatic soprano called Jessica Rosati and um, okay. I was writing a piece for her called Prayer for Neil which involved you know her singing like a classical singer really kind of loudly and full on and then you know feeding that through a tape loop you know two track um, oh, wow. quarter inch tape chain and layering and kind of distorting her voice um, it's kind of, I somehow emulate uh, that sound that I love and, and as I, as I related to from when I was a kid, like these kind of Bulgarian choral female <laughs> choirs. Okay. Um, and you know, the dude in the park with like, you know, the, the shitty mixing like at the yeah. Macedonian picnics and stuff, like just putting way too much reverb and distortion <laughs> and everything. So, you know, it took me a long time to figure out the right amount of reverb and distortion. And I probably <laughs> still don't know. But like so I was doing that for Jessica's piece and then Mark and I were working on Arundi, the third song, and then and then some of the stuff from when one of my classical so called compositions found its way into that track, you know, so so Jessica is all over that track There's kind of Ornamenting and complimenting Mike's voice. Oh,
1: that's um, awesome.
0: Yeah, so so he's kind of got this like, you know, um operatic soprano backup singer, except she's being like mashed through a two track. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> But that's, that's a really clear example of how things kind of have intersected for me in the past. Um okay. Certainly a lot of revox on this record. And, you know, I, I, I learned I learned how to use the revox primarily from a French bloke called Jérôme Netanger, um, who used to work in a handmade film collective called Salut, um, l'entrevention de Metamkin, which is um, this kind of collective of two filmmakers and a sound guy, Jérôme, doing live 16mm film manipulation with live tape manipulation, so it's all analog, all handmade. Um, And he taught me how to use the tape machine in a compositional way, Um, and a lot of that is all over Necroscope. A lot of the samples are generated from, you know, a a very roundabout and long process of of recording various materials onto tape and then editing it onto sampler, which are then, you know, put into rhythmic song-like formations. Oh my um, gosh! Yeah, so yeah, so definitely um, other projects have, have fed into Tatema and vice versa. Although Tatema does tend to have its very unique identity, simply because of you know Will's drumming and Mark's voice and oh, yeah. and Eki's violin playing. But um, yeah, I work with Eki also on just loads of different things we've, we've done, we've worked together for say twenty years now. He was, he was even on my first SARDIC record.
1: Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Man, well, it's yeah. I'm, I love the album. I've, you know, I've been lucky enough to hear it a little early. It's, uh, I mean, and and I can't I can't speak to too many experimental composers because I don't know a whole lot. But um, yeah, it, to me, it's it's like it's almost like uh, like a Philip Glass meets Barry Adamson meets Swans meets Celtic Frost kind of matchup. Yeah, up on right. That. And it, and I love it because I love. All of those people. So it's it's yeah, a that's, really cool mashup for me and I it's so unique.
0: Yeah. Oh good man. I'm glad you like it. So yeah, yeah.
1: When or where can people check it out?
0: Yeah, you can get it. Um everywhere, I think, pretty much. Um best thing to do is like check out the Ipecac website, uh Ipecac Recordings, which is um Mike's label. Okay. Uh and also yeah, it's it's, a, it's available on all the things, uh, you know, all the all the uh, even, even including the um the, the streaming networks who don't pay artists properly. So if yeah. you don't want to pay us properly, <laughs> <laughs> please listen to it on Spotify.
1: <laughs> oh man, that's that sucks. yeah. We I've 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 had a lot of people a lot of discussions about Spotify and other streaming platforms. Uh, but
0: yeah, there... yeah, it, it's dark times. Dark yeah. times. A lot. Across the spectrum yeah
1: is there a social media presence for the band no beautiful <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> what about yourself if people want to follow I right have what a you're doing, I have no social media presence yeah I have an internet presence that is- that's that yeah yeah. com. if you're um, would like to send me a message and tell me how not funny I was during this interview that would be wonderful to hear from you <laughs>
1: Or how awesome you were, because this has been a blast i've had a, i've had so much fun
0: oh uh, good i'm glad
1: so I really appreciate you taking so much time meeting up with me you're from welcome. a whole other continent it's, it's it's been great thank you so much
0: yeah, you're very welcome mark thanks so much for having me.